Louise to come and give us our reading, uh, which is Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. God. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. When I was in the Royal Marines, uh, part of our training was to do something called dunker drills, which is uh, basically learning how to escape from a helicopter that's crashed into the ocean. And the training culminates with a sequence of events that goes something like this. You're, you're strapped into what is essentially the shell of a helicopter uh, suspended from the ceiling of a very large hangar uh, over a very uh, deep pool of water. And the way you're going to exit this helicopter is through a little window about that big. So you're strapped in, the lights go out, and the uh, helicopter drops into the water. And it goes down, 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 probably not that far, but it feels like a long way. And then it begins to, the cage rolls. And when it stops rolling, you can get out. Uh, but you've got to wait your turn because there's other guys trying to get out of that same uh, window. So once you're out of the helicopter, obviously the priority is to get to the surface of the water. Um, but it's dark, it's disorientating, and if you panic, you could quite easily find yourself swimming down instead of swimming up. And that, if you like, is an image of what Isaiah means when he says the people walking in darkness. They are so enveloped in darkness that they don't know which direction they're traveling. They don't know which way is up or which way is down. Their moral compass is broken and they have no light to guide them. Now, you'll remember that the kingdom of Israel split in two after the reign of King Solomon. So you've got the, uh, the ten uh, northern tribes and the two uh, southern tribes. And the first part of the book of Isaiah was written at a time when both the northern and the southern tribes were intact, although the northern tribe was already being menaced by the Assyrian Empire. And Isaiah was addressing the leaders of um, 
Jerusalem and Judah, so the, the southern kingdom. And his message was very simple. Turn back to God and change your ways or things are not going to go well for you. You see, God's people had turned away from God. They put their trust in false gods and lifeless idols. Uh, their cultic practices included at various uh, times child sacrifice, temple prostitution, uh, lewd fertility rites, all kinds of stuff. It was a total mess. Not only that, but their society was extremely unjust. The lowly and the outcasts were oppressed. The downtrodden couldn't get justice, and the rulers only cared about themselves. And of course, uh, in the ancient Near East, war and the threat of war was a constant destabilizing factor. So all in all, this was a very dark time for the people of Judah, who, for the most part, allowed themselves to be led astray. And what Isaiah does is he, he offers a vision of hope. And he begins by showing where this hope will come from uh, geographically. He says, in the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And you can see probably from the slide that those were the first of Israel's tribes to be assailed by the Assyrians. So you might think uh, that this is a dangerous and unstable region. And, uh, and it was. Yet, the hope for all of humankind sprang from this very area. You notice that the Sea of Galilee is a prominent feature in the region. Well, we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he began his earthly ministry, his teaching, uh, his healing the sick, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He began that ministry in Galilee. He based himself in Capernaum, which is a, is a little town uh, on the edge of the lake there. And in Matthew 4, it explicitly states that this was in fulfillment of what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Today, it would be like saying that the greatest hope for humankind is going is to emerge from Afghanistan or South Sudan, or some other volatile area. We'd be very skeptical, wouldn't we? But God almost always works in ways that are surprising to us. And Isaiah speaks of a great light that will radiate out from Galilee to all the nations of the earth. Remember in God's promise to Abraham, we see it back in Genesis 22, that all nations of the earth would be blessed through his offspring. And here in verse 3 it says, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. Now that nation, this nation that's been enlarged from, uh, you know, Isaiah is speaking to Israel, but from a Christian perspective, the new Israel are all God's faithful people who came before Jesus. So we know that a lot of God's people sort of turned away and were, were faithless and unbelieving and went after other gods, but there's a lot of God's people in the Old Testament who remained faithful to God. So it's all of them, uh, plus everybody who has put their hope and trust in Jesus since he came into the world 2,000 years ago. So that is a lot of people. That is billions of people. As it says in Revelation 7 verse 9, which is uh, talking about Jesus' second coming, 
says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Ultimately, that's what it means to say you have enlarged the nation. This nation's gone beyond that group of people who would would have been known as Israel, and it's been extended out to people of every nation and tribe and language. Isaiah is predicting the arrival of a uh, Messiah figure who will be the light of the world, uh, making a way for all people to be brought back into a right relationship with God. Isaiah was foretelling the very event that we're celebrating this Advent and Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And you might say, well, that's all very well, but Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, and the world is still, in many respects, a very dark place. There's war in Europe and the threat of nuclear war looming in the background, or maybe even the foreground. Uh, That conflict is uh, causing food shortages around the world, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. Then there's the fact that China has vowed to take back Taiwan, and everyone's worried about uh, when and how they might try to do that, not to mention the numerous uh, smaller conflicts that are still raging in various parts of the world. So Jesus is the Prince of Peace, Where's the peace? And what about climate change? We can't go more than a week or two without hearing about the effects of climate change, some natural disaster that's occurred somewhere in the world. And even if you're skeptical about climate change, there's no denying that there's a lot of natural disasters and we're told uh, an increasing number happening around the world. If Jesus is mighty God, why doesn't he do something about that? Then there's injustice and oppression which are still extremely prevalent. In fact, there are more slaves in the world today than there were at the height of the transatlantic slave trade. And since the COVID pandemic, there's been a massive spike in human trafficking and uh, sex trafficking in particular. If Jesus came to uphold justice and righteousness, why isn't he doing it? These are legitimate questions. And, And to answer these difficult questions. We need to know where we stand in relation to Isaiah's prophecy. So for Isaiah's original audience, the the leaders of Judah, this was clearly something that was going to happen in the future. And for us, it's tempting to say, well, Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, so we must be standing on the other side of this prophecy, looking back on it as a past event. But the whole point of Advent is not just that we're looking forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus. Advent is also about watching and waiting for Jesus' return, which is a future event. Jesus promised to return. So those living in the land of deep darkness, that's not just the people of Judah living 2,700 years ago. It's the whole of humanity throughout the ages, right up to the present day. On those living in deep darkness, a light has dawned. God has entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived, he died, 
and he was raised to new life to reign and rule his kingdom forever. God's kingdom has been established here on earth, but it will not be fully established until Jesus returns, sometimes referred to as the now and the not yet of the kingdom. So Jesus' kingdom is here, but it's not yet fully here. And some will ask, well, why the delay with so much evil and suffering in the world? Why doesn't Jesus come back now and put a stop to it all once and for all? Well, Peter answers this very question in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, God is giving humanity, God is giving each individual every opportunity to turn to him. The now and the not yet of the kingdom is a bit like this. So at the beginning, I told you, uh, or I'll use the analogy of being underwater, uh, in the dark, disorientated, trying to make our way to the surface of the water. Well, imagine that someone shone a bright light above the surface of the water. You, you, would, you would immediately swim towards that light, knowing that it was the way to safety. And that is what Jesus' kingdom is like now. Jesus is here. He's present in the world, and we know that he is the way to safety. But once we break the surface of the water, precisely in that moment, the lights come on, and the whole place is flooded with light. We can see everything clearly. Well, that's like God's future kingdom. When Jesus returns, the light will be present everywhere, and there will be no darkness. So we have the now and the not yet of the kingdom. Now, the analogy breaks down because in the analogy, we have to swim to be saved. But in reality, our salvation is not dependent on anything we do, but it's dependent on what Jesus has done for us. And this comes across in verse 4. It says, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. What we read about Midian's defeat in the book of Judges, God gives a very ordinary man called Gideon the task of leading the Israelite army out against the oppressive and violent Midianites. So Gideon is leading this army of 30,000 men. And God says, no, that's too many. So they whittle it down to about 10,000. And God says, no, that's still too many. In the end, Gideon goes out to face this huge Midianite army with just 300 men armed with trumpets and lanterns, which doesn't sound like a very good idea. But they're victorious. And they're victorious not because of their military prowess, but because of God's power and faithfulness. And the reason that the people of Judah could be confident in Isaiah's prophecy, and the reason that we can be confident in the complete fulfillment of this prophecy is that it doesn't rely on broken, sinful, fallible, unreliable human beings. It relies on a loving, steadfast, trustworthy, infinitely powerful God. So the Midianites were defeated not because Israel's army was great, 
but because God is great. And these promises that we see through the prophet Isaiah will be fulfilled uh, not because of anything that any person or any group of people or humankind will do, but because of what God has done. And where it says, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Yes, it refers to the Midianites and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all those other groups that oppress God's people. But the oppressive burden that Isaiah speaks of is ultimately sin and death and every form of evil and darkness. That's what Jesus, who is the King of Kings, came to deal with and has dealt with. This is a message of tremendous hope. And the amount of hope that we take from this message, the hope that we take from the good news of Jesus, is directly proportionate to our level of confidence in the message and in the God who stands behind it. Isaiah is able to speak of these things as if they have already happened because he's completely confident in God. He trusts God. He knows that God will do exactly what God has said he will do. And we can be even more confident than that. We can be even more confident because we know that Jesus has lived, he's died, and he's been raised from the dead, and we know that he has promised to return. There's a lot of things in life that we might hope for. Uh, We might hope to pass an exam or to get that job that we've applied for. We might hope that our offer is accepted on a house or that our parents are able to visit for Christmas. And these are all good things to hope for. But we wouldn't want to live as if our lives depended on those things. Biblical hope is not wishing for something to happen. It's knowing that something has happened. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's putting our trust in him. And of course, this Advent, we are preparing to celebrate the beginning of this amazing story of God becoming man and dwelling among us. And it's interesting to see the different ways that people prepare for Christmas. Uh, For some weeks now, we've been seeing those huge light displays on homes that must make the electricity meter spin around in a blur and then there's the the planning the shopping the excitement a lot of time and effort goes into christmas the problem is a lot of people don't really know what they're celebrating there are many many homes where jesus won't even get a thought or a mention this christmas so what's it all for what's it all for Christmas without Christ offers no hope whatsoever. At best, at best, it provides a momentary distraction from the gloomy news, the troubles of life, and the darkness of this world. But Christmas with Christ offers us a vision of the world that is supremely hopeful, one in which sin and evil and Uh, death and darkness will be abolished forever. As we get ready for Christmas, it's as if we're preparing to receive our king, a king very different from the Old Testament kings of Israel and Judah, uh, very different from any human ruler who has ever lived. 
A king who offers real hope, real hope to a broken and hurting world. And a king who will ultimately dispel all darkness forever. This Advent, uh, we're preparing to receive our king by remembering his entrance into the world and by watching and waiting for his imminent return. The light has dawned, and one day the light will illuminate the whole of creation in a way that is unmistakable, undeniable, and irresistible. So let's keep focused on Jesus and what he came to do this Advent and Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you open the eyes of the blind and you help us sinful human beings to see the truth and the spiritual realities of this world, the true message and meaning of Christmas. And we pray, Father, that you continue to open our eyes even wider to this truth and help us to convey this truth to a world that is broken and is hurting and desperately need this message of hope this Christmas. We thank you, Father, that you are the light of the world. Your son is the light of the world, is the hope of the world. And we put our trust in Jesus today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.